So there are many questions. I grouped uh, some of the questions together around some themes. Some of the themes will be obvious, some not. So, since faith is so crucial to the practice, in what ways can we cause it to arise each day, or even when the need for it is seen, in our retreat practice? Please give some examples from your own experience. And what is the significance of the different types of bowing? Please explain. Thank you. I think, and probably it's been mentioned in some of the talks, that the quality of faith arises in different ways and on different levels. One of the biggest, uh, not exactly a turning point, but a, an expansion of my understanding of how to arouse faith in the practice came with a deepening uh, appreciation of the power of prayer. Now, prayer is not something that is so often talked about in the Theravada tradition. Of course, in some of the other traditions in Buddhism, it's mentioned a lot. Um, When we think of prayer not as praying to some divine being necessarily, you know, to give us what we want, but prayer as an attitude of the heart that simply opens us to forces or realities or understandings greater than ourselves. And so what I often do on retreat, and I found a beautiful way for myself to inspire or to remind myself of this this quality of faith, I'll often begin each day with kind of like a refuge prayer. You know, and I'll do the refuges and precepts, and then I'll create a refuge tree in my mind of all my teachers, of all the teachers I've had. And as I think of them, I just spend a moment or two reflecting on and absorbing just the unique quality you know, because each teacher kind of embodies or expresses the Dharma in their own unique way. And so it's a wonderful, you know, here, all these wonderful beings that had been in my life, I would just think of them, call them to mind, reflect on their special or unique qualities, all the way up to the Buddha. And then as I created this refuge tree in my mind, I would just express a kind of prayer or aspiration you know we each will find our own words but the words that I often use are um, thinking of them and maybe other great beings Buddhas and Bodhisattvas may you grant your blessings that my heart open that I attain greater wisdom whatever our highest aspiration is and I found that it's just a way of connecting. You know, it's a way of connecting my heart with the lineage you know, of all these beings who have walked this path before us and perhaps farther than us. So this, this has been a, a kind of a way of arousing the quality of faith. 
Another way, and this is on, on another level, is when we understand faith and the quality not, not limited to our relationship to beings, even great beings, outside of ourselves, but actually connecting to the truth, the dharma of the moment. Because when we are very connected to the moment's experience, you know, to the breath or a movement or a sensation, in that moment is there any doubt? There's no doubt. There's just the simplicity of that experience. There's, there's the truth of the Dhamma in that moment. And so often, those times when we feel that we need faith you know, and want to inspire it, it's because we're not connecting to the truth of the moment. And that's why some doubt is arising. So that's, that's working on another level. In terms of the bowing and the different ways people bow, even when we read the discourses, the suttas of the Buddha, you know, and they're describing various uh, people coming to see the Buddha, the description will be, you know, some people bow and touch the Buddha's feet. Some people walk around circumambulating him, you know, with their hands raised in this position. And so even from ancient times, there's not just one form. When I first, when first teaching here and I noticed that some of my colleagues were doing the very traditional bow, you know, on the knees and touching the head to the floor, uh, which is a very traditional way in Burma, you know, in bow when you go to, to see your teacher or in front of a Buddha image, that's the formal way of bowing. But I had the thought that I actually wanted to bow in another way just to demonstrate that there are many ways to do it. You know, and we don't have to sort of feel that there's just one form for a bow. And it's really an expression of one's own inner mind state and feeling. The Buddha didn't have to deal with clocks and calendars the way we do. I find myself constantly obsessing about time, from when will the bell ring to how many days are left in the retreat. It really amazes me because I want to be here. Knowing wanting to be there is useless. Any thoughts? And then there's just a second question on this note. When sitting with an extremely intense pain, where your whole body feels like it's bouncing all over inside, how do you know when to shift and when to stick it out, that is, to be with it? When do you say, this is really just too intense? The question about the time thoughts, I think, is extremely... um, important to develop an understanding of because there's a kind of insight that is amazingly transforming in our lives and is actually not that difficult to see and understand. You know, it's not that we have to wait, you know, 40 years and maybe someday we'll, we'll get it. 
And that is insight into the nature of time. So that when you're sitting and you have a thought, how many days left in the retreat? You know, I don't know what number we're up to now, but 40, 50, 60, whatever it is. <laughs> Do you have it down to the minute? <laughs> the important thing to realize in that moment is that the only thing that's actually happening is that there's a thought in the present moment. The whole concept of future is simply a concept. We're getting lost in the thought how much longer the retreat is. Oh, I can't imagine lasting. You know, or when is the bell going to ring? We create the sense of time as a concept then get lost in the concept and are not seeing that all that's really happening is that it's just a thought. So, for example, in the sitting, in the walking, thought arises, so many more weeks, I'll never do it. Put the label right in that moment. Really be mindful, just in that moment, just a thought. It's just a thought. A thought is very light. The concept of future is huge. You know, we're going through our lives carrying this concept on our shoulders. And this is true of future, it's true of past. We're just carrying these notions of time and the reality that we invest in these concepts and burdened in our lives. And you know this very well. How much of your day is spent lost in past and future thoughts? You know, it's probably some quite large percentage of time because we're not seeing clearly we're getting seduced by the concept of future the concept of past and we're not seeing it's just a thought so I would recommend using that label to remind yourself it's very light the thought is there and it's gone and it doesn't it doesn't change the quality of the present moment for you if you get lost in the concept of past and future, ah, the retreat is another two months, another six weeks, your whole present reality can take on this kind of heavy, depressed, or excited, whatever, whatever emotion it arouses in you. Do you see the difference? It's really quite amazing. So it's just, it really comes simply from paying close attention to the fact that it's only a thought, every thought you have of time. In terms of working with pain, intense pain, and when to know, you know, when to sit with it and when to shift, a lot depends on the quality of mindfulness you can bring to it. If there's a sense of willingness, even when it gets really intense, you know, just really intense, you're just sitting and the pain feels unbearable. But there's, there's that quality of interest and willingness. Let me experience intensity. Let me see what this is. Let me die from this. If you have that interest and willingness, then I would say push the edge. You know, just say. At other times, the energy of, of that willingness is not there. You're just sitting and you're simply struggling with it. And it's kind of a macho deal to sit and endure it 
I think that's not that helpful. Because what mind states are you cultivating at that time? You know, so if that's how the energy is, a shift position. You know, and do that mindfully and see what that's like. One time when Saida Upandita first came uh, in 84 and we were doing this three-month retreat with him, at one point in my practice, he had the rather strange notion that I should sit until the pain came and then sit through it, however long it took. You know, so at that time, it's like my concentration was pretty good and I was sitting quite easily for you know, an hour and a half or so and there was not much pain in the body, but then an hour and a half, two hours, it really started to hurt. <laughs> You know, and I'm sitting two hours, three hours, and it got very, very intense, really intense. And I was really trying to push myself. You know, but each time, and at a certain point, I would move before the pain had dissolved. And I'd go into the interviews and report to him. And he was trying to encourage me. And at one point, I came into the interview and he said, Don't you have any pride in being a man? <laughs> <laughs> And at that point, I didn't have the slightest pride in being a man. <laughs> that, that, that didn't work at all. <laughs> so it really depends on how we're approaching it. Um, there are times to really extend, you know, and see, you know, really push the limit, and times not to. I have a question concerning reincarnation, which also applies to other Buddhist religious concepts, such as the Deva realms, etc. I have not come to a place of belief in reincarnation, nor do I disbelieve it. Rather, I see how holding it as an understanding can be used as skillful means in practice and in life. Could you address the relevance and importance of such beliefs or concepts in practice? Most of the Buddhist teachings really are verifiable for us, you know, in our own practice. And we see the truth of impermanence, we see the truth of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, we slowly realize and deepen our understanding of selflessness. Some of the teachings we don't necessarily uh, easily verify for ourselves. For example, the, the whole idea of rebirth or other planes of existence, you know, the Deva realms or the Brahma realms. I went through quite an interesting process when I first went to India and really first started hearing these teachings because I, as all of you, you know, grew up with a Western education, studied philosophy, Western philosophy at college. So that's, that's how my mind was conditioned went to India and started hearing these teachings about realms of existence, you know, and rebirth. It was not something that, you know, I had a natural belief in or understanding of. Um, and the, te- the belief in those teachings is not necessary for liberation. You know, whether we have a belief in rebirth or we don't, the truth of suffering and the end of suffering is right here. But I remember one time with Munindraji, uh, because he loved to talk about the other realms, you know, in the day. So he would have these long kind of uh, 
on Dhamma talks on the different Deva realms and you know what went on there. Uh, and he would always end these talks by saying, you know, because he knew the Westerners were skeptical uh, of it. He said, "You don't really have to believe this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it." <laughs> and that's how we would end. I went through a process of understanding, particularly around rebirth and the possibility you know, of other realms, in a couple of ways. As I got into the practice and I saw for myself how much of the Buddhist teachings that I could verify you know, in experience, it, it was all true. It's like everything the Buddha said about this mind and body, as far as I could see, you know, matched my experience. So that created a certain basis or foundation of trust. Well, if so much is true, and he talked about this, you know, so began to give him the benefit of the doubt, just because everything else was so right on. Then I met Deepama, you know, who was this extraordinary yogi, who had tremendous attainment, and who was talking about these realities not from a textual point of view, you know, not from just saying this is what the Buddha taught and this is in the text. She was talking about these realities from her own experience. Uh, you know, and people, especially when she came to the West, really pressed her. Is this what you've seen? You know, or is it just you know, what's in the books? And she was, she was quite forthright you know, in, her, in her saying that, yes, this, this is what I've seen and what we all could see if we had those level of attainment. So that also began to open me more to the possibility of these teachings being true, you know, just because I had so much faith in her. And the last piece was the growing understanding and experience of the nature of my own mind, the nature of awareness, not conceptually but experientially, and to begin to deeply realize the non-material nature of awareness. You know, our Western world is so materialistic, not, not just in the sense of acquiring possessions, but our reality you know, is so much about the material world and there's not a very sophisticated understanding of the nature of consciousness, the nature of awareness. And so in practice, as we begin to see for ourselves its immaterial quality, its immaterial nature, then it begins to make a little more sense of how rebirth might happen. Because when we see that awareness is not inextricably tied to the body, those are all of these things. You know, just growing faith in the Buddhist teachings, the connection with Deepama, my own deepening understanding. But I think it's important to realize that we should just come to these understandings in our own time. It's not necessary to have belief in them. This is not, belief is not part of the, uh, the program here. It's really inquiry and investigation and seeing for ourselves. I think an attitude that's very helpful as we explore things beyond, beyond our current level of understanding is to keep an open mind. And that, as was expressed in the note, neither to believe blindly or to disbelieve blindly, but just, well, 
this may be possible. The one teaching which I think is important to begin to bring into our life practice, which we may not fully see or comprehend, but I think has more importance for how we live, is the teachings on the law of karma, of cause and effect. And I'll be giving a talk just on karma and sort of exploring what that means uh, later on. But without the understanding of cause and effect, even within this lifetime, if we don't take responsibility for our actions and see that actions lead to results, I think that not seeing that is actually very detrimental to our spiritual journey. Uh, And the Buddha talked about this a lot. It's one aspect of right view, that actions have consequences. Actions bring results, not only in the moment, but also in the future. So this one teaching, I think, is really important to explore. In working with the practice, it is said that layers peel away. The, purifica- the purification of the mind. Is it possible for these to return? Or will the power of the wheel of Dhamma continue to turn one's life towards the practice? And somewhat related question uh, is how does choiceless awareness arise? The practice is one of purification and we are letting go and deconditioning patterns of mind, patterns of action that cause suffering. And so that's that's the process. Through being mindful, we're, we're able to make choices and to see which factors are onward leading, which are not, which simply causes suffering. But the Buddha also said something very relevant to our own lives, particularly as lay people. He said, when we practice, wisdom grows. And when we don't practice, wisdom wanes. So very often we think, well, we have a certain insight, we see something, and then we have it, you know, and it's solid within us. Well, it is within us to the extent that it has been a genuine insight, we've seen it, it has its transformative power, but if we don't continue our practice, the old habit patterns of mind can easily come back in and cover it, you know, and gets obscured. So we again are lost in our confusion or doubts. An image which has come to mind, you know, because as lay people, most of us are in and out of intensive practice situations. We're not living monastic lives which are protected and supportive of the Dharma, uh, you know, all year. We're subject to a lot of influences in our lives. What I've noticed is it feels a bit like coming to retreat and doing all this sometimes hard work. It has felt to me sometimes like just digging a trench, you know, just doing the hard work of first getting present, dealing with, you know, the hindrances that come up, letting go of many of the patterns of our conditioning. You know, so it's 
we're doing the work. And the trench gets dug. And then, let's say, water flows in it. We go out in the world or we stop practicing, the trench starts to get filled in, you know, with leaves and branches and twigs and it gets a little clogged and the water doesn't flow as smoothly. But the next time we come back and really begin to do the practice again, it's not as hard, you know, to dig it out and to open it up because we've done the previous work. And so the fruit of what we do, I think, is always there. There is the potential for it to clog up again a little bit. But when we see that happening and then again we do the work, it opens up much more easily. And this is analogous to something that happens in the meditation practice itself. And it was the question about choiceless awareness. That real quality of choiceless awareness happens when the mind reaches a certain level of concentration. Now, because we can, we can open up early on in this very choiceless way, but unless the mind has some stability of concentration, you know, we're open, but it easily gets lost. We just get carried away again and again. So there's not, there's not necessarily a continual flow of this awareness. It's very choppy. And so the image which has reflected my own practice and understanding, it's like in the beginning, when we're in the process of building the concentration and stabilizing it, it's like there's an arch, you know, and we're standing, balancing on top of the arch, and we keep falling off one side or the other. And every time we fall off, we have to climb back up, make the effort to get to the top. But at a certain point, the arch inverts, and we're just resting on the bottom, and we're still pulled out. You know, it's not that we stay there uh, completely. We're pulled out, but from that point of practice, the mind just comes back to it effortlessly. But do you see the difference? I mean, one takes effort to come back, and the other, the mind comes back effortlessly. And in some sense, this is the stage of what is called access concentration, where the concentration, there's enough momentum and strength that it's just flowing, it's working by itself. It's not that we never get lost or pulled out, but it comes back effortlessly. Do primary partnerships, relationships, have a place in lay Buddhist practice? Or are these relationships viewed as attachments and a source of continuing rebirth? Is it possible for one engaged in romantic relationship to realize stage three of enlightenment or full enlightenment? Or does this attachment make it impossible? Well... being the expert that I am, (laughs) I thought I would read you something which I find incredibly beautiful in terms of the possibility of relationship 
that could allow for the fulfillment of the deepest, our deepest spiritual aspirations. And it's from uh, the great poet, Rainia Maria Rilke. And I just I find this really beautiful. He said, the point of marriage is not to create a quick commonality by tearing down all boundaries. On the contrary, a good marriage is one in which each partner appoints the other to be the guardian of their solitude, and thus they show each other the greatest possible trust. A merging of two people is an impossibility, and where it seems to exist, it is a hemming in that robs one party or both of their fullest freedom and development. But once the realization is accepted that even between the closest people, infinite distances exist, a marvelous living side by side can grow up for them if they succeed in loving the expanse between them, which gives them the possibility of always seeing each other as a whole and before an immense sky. That is why this too must be the criterion for rejection or choice, whether you are willing to stand guard over someone else's solitude, and whether you are able to set this same person at the gate of your own depths, which the other learns of only through what steps forth in holiday clothing out of the great darkness. So I think there is this great possibility. You know, if in relationships we actually support each other's solitude, support each other's Dharma journey, it can be a really beautiful thing. I mean, Rilke is just such a great poet. You know, his words, his words are wonderful. Now we get to some hard questions. This might not be relevant for a while yet, but could you explain your understanding of the term bodhisattva? <laughs> and these are a few questions. To me, enlightened beings included the Buddha, including the Buddha, going off to nirvana, never again to be born from the womb, looks like a version. <laughs> Why don't enlightened beings keep coming back as bodhisattvas to help out? I heard you say recently that we should believe that fully enlightened beings do exist and live among us. My question is then, why would they not reveal that and teach the Dharma like the Buddha? What would be the benefit in keeping that a secret when beings are suffering so much? I thought Buddhahood was a more engaged existence. My second question is... Do you believe that a Buddha will be uh, born soon and begin teaching like the other Buddha? Some of my Tibetan friends believe that, and they recently shared that with me. What do you think? They say this being will be a kind of savior, savior and will help many beings dwelling in, dwelling in darkness. I think it's important to kind of step back and first define terms a little bit. You know, because within the different Buddhist traditions, terms are used differently. And so, 
then when we're hearing things from, you know, the Tibetan tradition or Theravada or Zen, the same word may mean de very different things and it can get confusing. So I'd like to t just talk briefly about three terms to use. One is Arhant, one is Prajeka Buddha, and one is Samasambuddho, the, the big Buddha. Okay, in Arhant, within the Theravada understanding, is somebody who has completely uprooted all the defilements of mind. So the mind is free, the mind is liberated. And the classical belief or traditional belief among most Theravadins is that when you become an Arhant, when the mind is free of all greed, free of hatred, free of delusion, then there is no more rebirth. Because as Trungpa Rinpoche once said when he was asked, what is it that's reborn? He said, your neurosis. <laughs> Which I think was a very <laughs> clever answer. When there's no more neurosis, what is there to be reborn? So that's the view of the Arhant. The Prajeka Buddha, which I won't dwell on a lot, the translation of that is called Silent Buddha. And that is somebody who is not only an Arhant, but has developed also all the special qualities, the unique qualities of a Buddha. Which because of the paramis, the, the long development of the paramis, endows a Buddha with a range of compassion and a range in depth of wisdom that an arhant does not have. The freedom is the same, but the power of mind is quite different. So a silent, of, silent Buddha is someone who has attained the level of Buddhahood, but because of previous aspiration, uh, does not teach. So he just enjoys that freedom uh, in, his, in his own way or her own way. The fully enlightened Buddha, like Siddhartha Gautama, is one who has developed all the powers, who has totally freed the mind from all defilement, and motivated by compassion, teachers in the world. Okay, so there are these three terms. In some traditions, they use the word Buddha like a living Buddha, to refer to a fully enlightened being, but not necessarily what the Theravadins would call the Buddha like Siddhartha Gautama. You know, and so many of the great masters, the Zen masters, the Tibetan masters, are referred to as living Buddhas because their minds are totally free. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're equated with that samasambuddho. So terms can be used differently. When Dhamma Ruin was here, he mentioned something uh, in the teachings which I had never come across, but I found it very illuminating. He said, there are Arhant Bodhisattvas, there are Prajeka Buddha Bodhisattvas, and there are Buddha Bodhisattvas. And when I heard that, I found it very helpful 
as a reminder that whatever our future attainment is, whatever our aspiration is, you know, maybe we want, you know, the, the aspiration is to end suffering, to really come to the end of suffering as quickly as possible. Well, that's the Arhan path. You know, maybe we have the aspiration to become a fully enlightened Buddha. That might take a couple of months longer. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever our aspiration is, we can undertake that journey with the motivation of a bodhisattva. May I be liberated. May I become an arhant for the welfare and benefit of all beings. May I become a Prajeka Buddha. May I become a fully realized Buddha for the welfare and benefit of all beings. So I think it really has to do not so much with the particular attainment, but rather with the motivation with which we undertake the journey and the path. So all of us, you know, from where we are, can really practice with a bodhisattva aspiration. And a bodhisattva is a being destined for aspiring for enlightenment for the welfare and benefit of all others. And so whether we do it as an arhant, whether we do it as a silent Buddha, whether we do it as a fully accomplished Buddha, I mean, for most of us, it's not an immediate uh, question. <laughs> but we might have the aspiration. You know, we might be planting the aspirations in one way or another. Uh, it can all be done from this very altruistic motivation. And just to stir the pot a little more, even within classical teachings, the very classical teachings, which says, you know, that when we're fully enlightened, we don't come back. There's a very interesting biography of one of the great Thai forest masters, Ajahn Man. And he was reputed to be an arhant. He was one of the very great masters of the last century, and one of the kind of founding, founding fathers of the whole Thai forest tradition. You know, very realized, and with the whole range of psychic power and you know, the, full, the full development of mind. When you read his biography... It's quite interesting because he's talking about you know, going to these realms where he's meeting Buddhas and Arhans and you know, all these beings who shouldn't be around, which leads me to share with you a very helpful mantra. Who knows? <laughs> you know, we just hear... And I must, Ajahn Man, this, what he said is not the orthodox interpretation. But it also can't be totally discounted because, by all accounts, he was this great realized being. So, given that, and I think we're in the fortunate position of being in the West and not so culturally conditioned by the Buddhist teachings. You know, by the Buddhist cultural teachings, it's like we can take it all in. And if we keep an open mind, who knows? You know, we can set our own aspiration, we can set it 
if we are inclined, with a very bodhisattvic aspiration, let us aspire to arhanthood, to really free the mind. We might aspire to Buddhahood. And then let's see what happens. We'll see for ourselves. These were a few uh, ethics questions. Earlier in the course, you gave a talk in which you seemed to suggest that if your house were infected with carpenter ants or wood-boring beetles, that one might consider breaking the first precept and killing them. Even if you figure that your house is more important than the beetles' lives to you, from a karmic point of view, just out of caring for your own future happiness and not wanting to suffer, wouldn't it be better in the big picture not to kill them? What did the Buddha say was the karmic fruit of killing many living beings? I noticed that intoxicants were not mentioned in your talk in the Ten Unwholesome Actions. If alcohol or marijuana is taken without the intention of greed or craving, and in moderation so that it does not cloud the mind or cause heedlessness, (laughs) is it unwholesome (laughs) or breaking sila? On a personal note, uh-oh. <laughs> do you ever consume alcohol? Why or why not? How do you hold this issue in terms of sila as the practice of non-harping? You know, the consideration of ethics and of sila is really a profound practice. And I think it's... You know, sometimes... Uh, you know, especially in the West, we come, we come to the Buddhist teachings and to meditation and, you know, all of our efforts seem to be, you know, geared to the meditative practice and to the deepening of insight, which is very profound and transforming. But everything rests on sila. Everything rests on understanding morality, you know, and ethical behavior. And it's a subtle and refined and difficult arena to explore. It's not, as lay people, it's not so simple because we are confronted with some choices that monastics are not confronted with. And that's why the Buddha said the household life is filled with dust, literally and metaphorically. You know, and why he extolled the monastic life because one, it's set up so that one can live in a very pure way. So that's, that's the nobility of it. For whatever reason, most of us have not chosen that route. So we are living as lay people in the world, facing choices. And I think we each come, we each come to these dilemmas from our own um, level of understanding, our own perspective. It would be better. Undoubtedly, it would be better not to kill. And I think knowing that, we should exercise every possibility in our lives of refraining from killing. There may be times in our lives as householders where we're not at the place of sacrificing our house for even 
understood future happiness. You know, and so we're just making that call, understanding, yeah, this this will not have good consequences. This is not a wholesome act to do. But as we weigh all the different factors, you know, and our responsibilities in the world and our responsibility to others, we make that choice. To the degree that we can bring awareness and consciousness and as much compassion as possible, I think we mitigate the unwholesomeness of the action. So it's very real-life questions here, you know, and it takes a lot of attention and a lot of care. It's interesting also, you know, the different Buddhist traditions, even on questions of ethics and karma and killing, have different takes. So the question of, you know, isn't it rather unskillful to be killing a lot of living beings? Well, of course it is. From the Theravada point of view, the result of the action depends on the level of consciousness and purity of the being being killed. And so the higher level, higher level animals, for example, with greater consciousness, or certainly human beings, you know, and certainly human beings who are leading very wholesome lives, the karmic consequences keep growing. And so from that point of view, it's less karmically, what's the word? There are less serious consequences if killing is deemed necessary, you know, beings with less evolved consciousness. That's from the Theravada point of view. From the Tibetan point of view, it's the numbers being killed. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) You know, it's just these are understandings that are certainly beyond my direct experience. And so I think the instruction to us or the practice for us, can we be as non-harming as possible? in our lives and really taking care, taking some responsibility. In terms of intoxicants and why it's not mentioned in the Ten Unwholesome Actions, I think it's understood that the great danger of the intoxicants is the heedlessness that can come and which then causes us to perform all the other unwholesome actions. It's much easier, you know, when our mind is clouded or, or dull or confused, you know, or whatever, whatever mind state it happens to be, uh, much easier to fall into unwholesome patterns of behavior. Now with a rather... Thomas Aquinas-ian <laughs> analysis of all this. I did read in a text by Lady Sayadaw, who was one of the great Burmese masters, both scholars and meditation masters. And I, I don't know how he did this, but 
he put the taking of intoxicants under the precept of sexual misconduct. And so it actually is included in the Ten Unwholesome Actions. <laughs> but I don't know how he got it in there. <laughs> and maybe there are, you know, maybe scholars have an explanation. Um, I guess a few, just a few things to say. Just since I've begun practice, uh, I've approached especially, uh, you know, the question of intoxicants in different ways. And for, for extended periods of times, and really from a place of investigation, you know, and interest, I just said, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just not going to take anything and see what that's like. And it was very instructive. It was a very helpful thing for me to do. At other times, you know, I would be in a, in a life period where, you know, I would have a glass of wine or a glass of beer and didn't see it as a problem. So again, it's not so much seeing these as commandments. They're training rules. And we really have to investigate for ourselves what is the effect. And sometimes to practice the renunciation so that we get a measure. So we really begin to say, okay, well, what's that like when I do that? I would be very wary even of, you know, when, when we're in a slightly more liberal mode of when it becomes habituated. To me, that's the beginning of a kind of dependence, a kind of unawareness. You know, and so I see a difference between occasional occasional use and when we're just in the habit of it daily. But again, this is for each one of us to see and to explore. Okay. I don't want to end on intoxicants. <laughs> there, there are many great questions here. Uh, okay, maybe. So, what exactly is liberation? What does it feel like? What, what is enlightenment? How does it manifest? You mentioned that there are conditions necessary for awakening. What exactly are those conditions? And how do conditions lead to the unconditioned? Can you please explain the causes and conditions for attaining the stage of knowledge of stream entry? And once attained, does it guarantee a human birth? Well, as I mentioned, I believe earlier on in the retreat, there might be many ways of describing the enlightened mind or the liberated mind, but the one that seems most pragmatic to me and most connected to our own experience, and this is a description the Buddha used very often in the suttas, he described enlightenment as the mind free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. So we can get a taste of enlightenment in those moments when we are really mindful and there is no greed, no hatred, no delusion. In that moment, pay attention to the quality of that mind and you might contrast that with the mind that is lost in thought, is lost in some mind state, you know, or mood or emotion. The difference between the 
contract, contraction of being identified with what's going on and the freedom of being not identified in that place of openness and awareness, we get a taste. And we could think of liberation or enlightenment is when that taste of freedom becomes stabilized. When it's not just momentary, you know, but we have uprooted those causes of suffering in our lives. So how do we do this? What are the conditions for this to happen? You know, all of the Dharma talks that you've been hearing these weeks are all pointing to different aspects of cultivating the path. It's the cultivation you know, of concentration, of mindfulness. It's finding the balance of the factors of enlightenment that Michelle has been talking about. Balancing the tranquilizing ones with the energizing ones. Maybe just I'll kind of close with an aspect which I think either Susan or Myoshin, when have you talked on patience? Not yet. Uh oh. <laughs> Let me consult for a moment. <laughs> we don't like to use each other's material. <laughs> <laughs> the great advantage of going first. <laughs> anyway, there's one story, and it's just one story, which maybe you'll hear again. <laughs> In this path, you know, of developing all the factors and bringing them into balance, cultivating the factors of enlightenment, the quality of patience is just so important. The Buddha said, patience leads to Nibbana. It leads to freedom. It leads to awakening. When I was first came back from India and was teaching in this country, it was in 1974 at Naropa Institute. And this was the first gathering. It was like a Buddhist Woodstock. You know, and Trungpa Rinpoche had set up this Naropa Institute. And that first summer, it was just a summer school at first, uh, Ramdas was teaching a class on the Bhagavad Gita, and Trungpa was teaching, you know, on the basic, uh, basic Buddhism. And there were about, I don't know, a couple of thousand people there. Uh, and there's tremendous excitement. There's people from all over the country gathering, you know, really this first explosion of interest in teachings from the East. You know, and Ramdas had studied mostly with Hindu teachers and was teaching the Bhagavad Gita and sort of was talking about, you know, love and light and divine grace and, you know, that, that language of teaching. And so people would get really inspired and high. And then on alternate nights, Trungpa Rinpoche would teach, and he was kind of face the truth of suffering and get into it and see its causes, you know, in kind of the basic Buddhist approach. <laughs> so in one question period, uh, somebody asked Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, where in all of these Buddhist teachings is the notion of grace? you know, which is so beautiful. And on the part, you know, we do all our practice and the understanding yeah, that awakening happens through grace. Where we let go of kind of a, the self-striving. So they asked Rinpoche, well, in this whole Buddhist teaching, you know, what is grace? And Rinpoche thought for a moment and he just had this 
Such beautiful answer. He said, in Buddhism, patience is grace. You know, and it just, it just hit the truth of the experience. Because when we're patient, then we're open. And everything settles. And we're open to the possibilities. Open to the possibilities of awakening, of freedom. So let's sit for a few minutes. <laughs> May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. great questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.